These may be challenging times, but have hope and listen to the untold health stories about incredible people who have committed their lives to better their communities. Diverse health activists, direct medical providers, community organizers that are helping our communities to get healthier and stronger. Stories of local heroes during the pandemic and even before that proves over and over again that people can come together during times of need and make the world a better place. Stories you would never hear of, except at Healthcare Untold. Orale, let's go. Okay. <laughs> Today, it's a great honor to be with my co-host, Jasmine Nahira. Hello, Barbara. I'm so happy to be here with Healthcare Untold. I'm excited to be co-hosting these interviews with you, and I'm super excited about speaking with Laura Segura from Monarch Services today. Yeah, we have it's such a great honor to be with Lara today. Uh, and uh, our guest today, Lara Segura, is the Executive Director of Monarch Services in Watsonville, California. Uh, welcome to Healthcare Untold, uh, Lara. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here with uh, two amazing women, people that I look up to. Oh, thank you. Look up to you, too. Well, Monarch Services is one of the first rape crisis centers to be funded in California and was instrumental in developing and implementing one of the first sexual assault response teams in the nation. Uh, Monarch currently serves approximately 1,500 victims of domestic violence and sexual assault each year. And also, you've also been a community member of the Community Coalition of South County Triage Response Group in response to COVID-19. So thank you so much for being um, our guest today. And thank Laura, you. we'd like to, to jump in and ask you, you know, to kind of tell a little bit about yourself. Give us um, a little bit of your history and, and what led you to, to where you're at today in such an important leadership, leadership position as co-ED of Monarch Services. Sure, happy to share my story. I was born in Mexico, so I'm a first-generation immigrant. Uh, came to the Pajaro Valley as a child, and uh, I ended up attending public schools. And one of my very first experiences with um, dealing with culture shock was when I was in kindergarten, is Laura Segura here when they took attendance? And I said, I basically said, like, who's that? Because my real name um, is Laura Segura Barragan, you know, and includes both my parents' names as we do it in our culture. And so that sort of uh, was my first experience in this country and dealing with some identity issues. So again, I went to public schools. I ended up going to Cabrillo College. Um, I wasn't necessarily encouraged to go to college. Nobody really directed me in that direction. Luckily, I was an athlete. And that was sort of my reason why I wanted to go to college. And I went to and played basketball and ran track at a junior college level. Went to then I transferred to San Jose State, um, graduated from there, and at I graduated in 1991. And at, during that time, there was a really small minority of us uh, Latinx students, uh, especially those of us that were first generation immigrants uh, in uh, higher education, uh, four year university, and. Um, I, it really opened my eyes to the issues of social justice and equity. And that is when I sort of discovered there's an issue here. Uh, I didn't know what it was before and I didn't know what to call it, but I learned what it was when I was in college because there were such few of us 
And we were there as a network sort of supporting each other, including the EOP program that, that I was a part of and uh, was really, really instrumental in helping me get through college. Um, and my professional career started uh, when I decided to move back to my hometown in Watsonville because I knew that I had a responsibility to help encourage other young Latinas, Latinos to come to attend college and really encourage them. And I knew that I've always known that I have a responsibility both in my family as one of the elders in my family uh, to help lift up um, our younger, the younger generation. And I really took that to heart and I take responsibility in what I do most of the time in my life, uh, in my community as well. And so I came back to my community and I started uh, doing volunteer work. And some of the first people, few people that I met um, were community activists. And they're the ones that really helped introduce me to the community and some of the projects and issues that we were working on. And some of those issues, including uh, Latino equity in South County, because at mm -hmm. that time there weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of county funding going to South County and services were lacking to the folks in South County as well, including our agency, which was back then called Defensa de Mujeres. Um, most of the services domestic violence specific services were being um, were being delivered in North County, which was predominantly um, and has been predominantly white. So that's sort of how I came back to my community and how I started um, working. And one of the first projects I did was I started a mural project. Uh, I took taggers, um, what, what we used to call taggers, and they were they were artists, they were graffiti artists. And I said, why don't we try to do something uh, positive with your talents? And so we got commissioned by the city of Watsonville, the county, uh, and Salud para la Gente. We had we did the mural behind Salud para la Gente, which Barbara is very familiar with. And <laughs> we got commissioned and these kids got paid to do that. And so that was one of my first sort of successes. And I went to go ask for money from a local philanthropist, uh, philanthropic group and they gave me $5,000 to get my project started. So that was the beginning of sort of me taking risks and knowing that uh, I had it in me to be able to do something positive and give back in my community. That's beautiful. I didn't realize that you had done that before with the murals here and there's a few murals locally that have been part of um, some recent media that actually Barbara was in one of those murals as well as part of the leadership of Salud para la Gente. So there's lots of, of history and roots in the, the murals here locally. What took you to start working at Monarch Services, Defensa de Mujeres? I had uh, an interest in working around uh, violence prevention since a young age because I was exposed to violence just in the community. I grew up around gang violence. I grew up and we sort of normalized it. And as a result of that exposure, I ended up with post-traumatic stress, uh, PTSD. And so uh, I really was interested in this issue. And when I was working at First Five, I was working at a, as a director there and I was learning around brain development in children, especially those in, um, 
that have witnessed violence and how it impacts their brain development. And I was very fascinated by that. And I said, this is definitely the route that I wanna take. And just at that time, um, there was an opening for an executive director position. And um, my husband at the time was also transitioning out of Silicon Valley. And so it just felt like it was the right time. And our kids were a little bit older that he was able to co-parent um, while I took on this ED position. Um, and so I've been at the organization for over 15 years, and it's just been such an honor to lead such uh, important work in our community, and more so now, um, but being able to work with such courageous people who are survivors and have been able to really change the trajectory of the, the lives, their own lives and of their families as well, which in turn helps the entire community. Absolutely. Do you wanna tell us a little bit more specifically about what is the mission of Monarch and what is the work that Monarch is known for here in our community of Santa Cruz County and specifically Watsonville? Sure. We are a countywide organization. We have a 45 year history in Santa Cruz County. We started in Santa Cruz um, in 1977, and it was basically started with a volunteers coming together uh, talking about this issue of uh, battered wives. That's what the issue was called back then. And what police would do when somebody, a woman, a wife would call law enforcement at that time is that they would respond to the home and they would take the person who has harmed, they would take him uh, for a walk around the block. That was called the cooling off period at that time. And so that was the extent of protections. And if you, if you know about domestic violence, it's actually, uh, during that time is probably one of the most unsafe times for uh, a victim is when law enforcement is called or when a victim leaves their abuser. And so it was, it, it created a lot more issues. Uh, and, but that was the extent of what would happen back then. And it was also considered a private matter. Neighbors didn't get involved by, there was no bystander intervention at that time. And People, women, victims were basically had to fend for themselves. And oftentimes uh, they didn't have those support systems. Uh, you, you had, what's that saying? Um, you made, you laid in your bed or you made your mm -hmm. bed, now lay in it. And so there wasn't a lot, a lot of support. And there's also this thing that um, people, uh, oversimplify domestic violence and they say, why doesn't she just leave? Well, domestic mm -hmm. violence is very, very complex. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But um, again, we provide services to those impacted by domestic violence, by sexual assault, rape, harassment, and also trafficking, which is on the which is on the rise. So those are our three primary goal areas. We have a confidential shelter that we've had from the very beginning. Uh, since we started our organization, we have a crisis line that is 24 hours a day. It's bilingual, it's free, and we have support groups. We have counseling. We provide assistance with restraining orders. 
and we also are able to provide accompaniment and so we'll accompany people to court hearings because it's a very uh, daunting experience and it's a very it's very scary especially if you've never experienced the court system uh, especially when you have trauma and you have to go before a judge and sometimes when there's translation the translation goes also also very fast so we work with survivors and explain the court process to them. We're also allowed as support people to go up and stand there with them as they are addressing the, the judge. We're not able to provide legal support, but we are there to provide the emotional support that someone who has experienced trauma is able to do. And that goes a long way. Uh, for them as well. We also provide uh, accompaniment to those that have been raped at the hospitals. Uh, we respond to the hospitals. And if there is someone that uh, chooses to go through a forensic exam, it's called a sexual assault response team, a SART. And if they choose to do that, then we are there to be there. Um, it, some, it's a very uh, extensive exam uh, because it's it's a forensic and they have to collect evidence and sometimes it lasts four to six hours so it's uh, it's scary on top of the trauma that they have already experienced and we're there to be with them every step of the way as well we are trained to do that and if they need assistance going to medical appointments, talking to any law enforcement or going to talk to district attorney's office, any of those appointments, we are there and um, can provide support as well. Uh, we are also in providing education in the schools. Uh, we're seeing an increase in teen dating violence. And so we are at local high schools uh, throughout the county and we are getting more requests than ever to go into the middle schools because we're seeing the violence at an earlier age as well. So that's sort of a snapshot of the many services that we provide. I'm wondering, Laura, what what is, um, like for some of our listeners that may not be very familiar with domestic violence, maybe they haven't experienced it or trafficking. Um, they haven't maybe experienced it, but it seems like these days, those are things that unfortunately people, it's getting closer and closer. Maybe, you know, first, second, third away, we would know somebody who's been impacted. For those folks that may not know much out there, what are the things that you would really like to drive home around these issues and really help educate and share information around? Good question. And one of the examples that I that always comes to mind is that when we had a high school girl saying, my boyfriend calls me all the time. He, I get like 20 to 30 phone calls a day from him. He's always checking in on me and he's always asking me, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Because I know he loves me. And so that that's an example of power and control. Domestic violence and all forms of violence are based on power and control. And so these are the types of things that we talk to teens about, what a healthy relationship looks like, and we go through the power and control wheel. And then, um, and we also talk about unhealthy behaviors, that getting a phone call from your boyfriend um, 20 to 30 times a day to check up on you is not a healthy relationship. And so we demystify those things so that people are able to 
uh, relate to them. Uh, it could be in the form of emotional abuse. So you don't have to be physically abused to, to be abused, um, to be a, a victim of domestic violence. Uh, oftentimes, it is the form of emotional abuse. And it could also be financial abuse. Many times a, a person who has harm doesn't want his partner to, to work so that they can have full control over them. Mm -hmm. And that means them not going out to get a job so that they don't have the financial means to get out of that relationship. They're very dependent on their abuser uh, for everything. And so that's another form of control. Uh, so there's, there, again, it's, it's really all about power and control. In terms of trafficking, oftentimes they, the people that are targeted are those that are most vulnerable. People come, young people coming out of the foster care system. We have heard instances where uh, the people who want to traffic them, they hang out at uh, foster homes because once they are terming out of foster care, once they're turning 18, and they lure them with gifts and promises. Um, and that's how they're able to lure them. And then they take full control of them. There's also labor trafficking where they are lured from other countries. Uh, sometimes it's a small village in Mexico, for example. And they say, oh, do you want to come to the United States? We have a job for you. And, um, and just let me, let me see your passport and your license and blah, blah, blah. They ask them for all those documents once they're, once they're here. And they take them away. And so they have full power over those those and then they threaten them and say if you tell you if you go to the authorities if you report any of this then um you're not you're going to get deported and your family is going to get hurt back home so threats all of that um takes place during these these trafficking um situations mm -hmm. as well it's a big issue that doesn't get spoken about or highlighted enough and this is Healthcare untold, right? And some people might be like, well, what does healthcare have to do with domestic violence or trafficking? Um, you know, can maybe can you talk a little bit about that? Like, have you seen like how are women, children, and families that are involved with these types of situations, like, are they even able to get their healthcare needs addressed? Do they have access? Do they have a hard time getting the type of therapy that they might need? What are some of the barriers or challenges to accessing healthcare for some of the folks that, um, that Monarch supports? Well, I just wanna say that yes, uh, domestic violence is very much a public health issue. Um, it is a pandemic within a pandemic right now. We have seen an increase of 75% in the need for our services and a 300% um, increase in calls on our crisis line during this past year alone. We typically serve about 1,600 uh, people a year, and that number has nearly tripled um, this past year during the pandemic. Uh, so basically, it's because those in, a, in abusive relationships are increasing, increasingly vulnerable. During the pandemic, we had to we had to quarantine. We have to be in be in our homes, right? But the home is not the safest place for those being abused. So they've spent increased time being isolated with abusive partners. 
So what that does is that increases opportunities for violent partners to further control and abuse um, their partners. And it's also fractured uh, support networks that, family, that the survivors had. Uh, they, are not they weren't able to go to uh, visit a girlfriend or go for a walk with a girlfriend or go visit family members when they needed a break uh, or they needed to flee. They weren't able to do that because travel was pretty much non-existent. So it, this dynamic basically increased instances of violence and it also made it really, really difficult for survivors to seek help and also flee uh, their violent uh, households. And uh, again, we have just seen an absolute increase in the number of people that we have been seeing um, during the pandemic. Uh, there's also been increased barriers for survivors to seek help. Um, many, again, uh, not able to, to get out to their, uh, and seek social supports, which is really, really critical um, for people with trauma and people that are needing that kind of, that kind of healing um, and support. And it's also caused, the pandemic has also caused economic hardship for, for families, which in turn has created more stressors on the family. So if a family already had uh, some, some stressors that existed within that family and there was already some violence, then this just exacerbated that situation uh, because either uh, one or both of them are no longer working in, in that relationship. And so there's much more stress. Lada, how did you respond to, to a triple percent of need? How did Because one of the things we want to highlight is that nonprofit organizations can have some flexibility, uh, you know, to really expand and be able to meet those needs. But that is an incredible amount of expansion of need that you had. How did your organization respond to that? Well, with the support of our partners and our awesome board of directors and our staff, we, we basically transitioned to telehealth. The good news is that it wasn't a hard transition because we had already been doing a lot of work with Zoom in previous years. And so um, our staff were very familiar with that. However, our clients were not familiar with it. So that was a bit of a stretch, but it has really worked out well. So we're doing telehealth. So we provided different options for folks. We provided options to come in person if it was absolutely urgent. We did. We took all the safety precautions to be able to do that. Uh, so we provided all the services that we had already been provided with a, pretty much the same amount of staffing. And we reached out to our partners to ensure, and one of the partnerships that was created out of all of this was the South County Triage COVID response group and we sort of all banded together to make sure that our most vulnerable community members had the supports that they needed including the financial supports and we were able to provide uh, assistance for for rent um, provide food assistance uh, resources information um, all of those things that families needed at that time and continue to need 
uh, during this time as well. And Lauda, my understanding is that that group consists of like over 60 organizations and leaders. And that it's also my understanding that the group made, made a pretty epic decision to um, join forces and receive money from the county as a group versus trying to obtain those funds individually as organizations for the betterment of the community. And that was one of the things that just really impressed me and um, the the strategy around that and the organization around that to come together in such a crisis to do what's best for the collective community. How did you all, you know, how, that's a lot of people <laughs> and it's a lot of folks to kind of corral. How did you all do that? I mean, that must've taken some amazing leadership and will to really work together in that way. It, it was pretty amazing. Uh, and I'm really proud to be part of this group. We have been working previously with the city of Watsonville and some of the other groups on some immigration issues, um, immigration and housing issues previously. And so um, it wasn't all that hard for us to come together because we had already done some of the advocacy work before, but not to this degree. And so when we came together March 20th of 2020, uh, right after a week after we sheltered in place, we said, well, we know we can predict what's going to happen uh, at the county level, uh, you know, countywide, not necessarily the government, but both at both levels. And we're pretty sure that South County is not going to be at the top of the priority list. We know that we have seen it, we have experienced it. And most of us are local folks that come from this community, so we know it well. And what can we, what are we going to do on our end so that we can all come together in the spirit of equity, in the spirit of making sure that people have the resources, our most vulnerable community members have the resources that they need so that they can get through this, um, these next two weeks is what we thought it was gonna look like. This <laughs> pandemic over the next few weeks. And it turns out um, that it was one of the best decisions um, we made was to come together. And we met every single Friday. Everybody had their regular jobs, but we put all of that aside. Not only, it wasn't necessarily putting it aside, it was incorporating our work into the bigger vision of what we want South County equity to look like in our county. And so, it, and it's been just a beautiful experience of so many different organizations um, coming together, uh, cross-sector task force, uh, talking about outreach to indigenous speaking community, about our messaging, having trusted voices um, represent our work. It's about, it's, it's also talking about the economic well-being of our community, wage replacement, housing opportunities, and looking at the data, uh, and the vaccine distribution plan and meeting with elected officials, making sure that it is equitable and that South County is not an afterthought when they're developing their distribution plans. Do you think that as a result of this coalition and this type of collaboration that there's opportunity for larger advocacy and um, partnership to meet the needs of the community in a different way than prior? To the pandemic happening like is there a is there any benefit to that that you can see that in the future of not only monarch but with the south county um leadership 
Absolutely, and we have to. I don't think it's an option. If we want to improve the well-being of our community and it, uh, improve the well-being of those that are most vulnerable, which is the Latinx community and those uh, living predominantly in South County, then we have to do this. And we have to create a vision that is a long-term. We've been talking about it for a while, and this is the beginning of, of that. And so we're already thinking about how do we come together and really formalize a lot of this because it's been very informal. We came together, we, uh, we got out there, we went to the food distribution sites, we volunteered at the vaccine clinics. We just did it, you know, I see, you know. Get it done. It's like how we do it in our mm -hmm. culture, right? You just roll up your sleeves and you get to it, vamonos, mm -hmm. and we got it done. Uh, but now taking a step back, how do we formalize this? So what we're looking at is having a formal process to create our strategic vision for South County that looks at economic well-being, that looks at housing, and looks at healthcare and the systems, and uh, looks at, uh, of course, racial justice, but also uh, criminal justice and how that's that impacts our community and how it's disproportionately represents our community as well. So many times of our community's history, it is these kinds of events that really bring us together and, you know, movements are created from these kinds of uh, events. I mean, uh, 1989, Watsonville had a major earthquake um, and people came together and they did some incredible work. It was at the same time that we were um, electing our first Latino representatives at city council. Uh, so it's so beautiful to see the development over these years, Lada, and you've been really uh, so involved in these, um, you know, dramatic processes to improve uh, the economic uh, power, the social power of our communities. Uh, so it's a it's a wonderful story uh, for this group and thinking about how do you look at those determinants of health and really use this opportunity to improve the health status of your communities. Well, thank you for laying the foundation and being such an inspiring force. All of you, which I consider elders uh, that have so much experience and so much wisdom uh, that we're, we stand on the backs of people like you who have really paved the way for us. And while we were talking about Latino equity 30 years ago, we're still talking about it today. Yeah. So I think that's an important part of change is that it takes years, decades to continue those struggles to ensure that, um, you know, we continue to work towards uh, a better community and a more empowered community. And um, so thank you, Lada, for, you know, continuing that vision of, of you know, in, ensuring equity and justice for um, our Latina, Latino communities and Latinx communities in, in South County, Watsonville, California. Well, Laura, the, the thing that always comes to my mind, and I think it won't be a surprise when I ask this question, is, you know, given the context of where you work, the type of work and the leadership that you provide both for the staff and the community, how do you care for your staff and their own mental health and well-being within, you know, being very traumatized, I'm sure, by some of the things that, you know, staff have to go through? 
And, um, and then how do you take care of yourself as a leader? We all know that being a leader, especially a woman, especially a woman of color, is no easy feat. And so how do you take care of yourself? What do you do to keep yourself showing up every day? Yeah. We, we have known that this work is really hard and people that work in this kind of, do this kind of work suffer from vicarious trauma, secondary trauma. And so it's, it's always been a priority for us and with the support of the board, of course, that Jasmine is a part of, uh, we are able to provide exceptional support, in my opinion. Um, we do outings. Uh, last week, we got out and did a staff meeting at the beach. We have this beautiful uh, environment that we live in Santa Cruz County. And so there's so much we can do. And so just being really creative, being non-conventional, non-traditional, and doing things that are different. And that's one of the ways that we've been able to to get people out into the fresh air and for us to be able to get together. And it was just, it was wonderful. We also provide opportunities for them to seek professional support uh, through counseling. We have fitness classes. We bring people in or we also go to those, to those locations where we, we get together and dance Zumba or, or we're able to, do a cycle class together, those kinds of things. So it's it's emotional, it's spiritual, it's physical health, all those things combined that we're able to provide support. And we also closed our office for during mid-year. Um, this year, after you know working 14, 15 months, we closed our offices at the end of June, at the end of the fiscal year. Uh, we asked the staff, what would be really helpful for you? Uh, and they said, it's great that we have one Friday off a month, but it, to check out, out of this work, we need an entire week or we need more time. And we said, what would that look like? And so we decided, let's just close down the last week of the fiscal year and everybody checks out. And it was wonderful. People came back just rejuvenated. I know that really helped me as well. And so we're just trying different things. It's, it, it, there's no one size fits all. Everybody is different and everybody shows up differently. And so we ask our staff what it takes. And we have a really loving and caring and compassionate uh, leadership team and a board of directors that provides that kind of support for us to be able to do the work that we do. And it trickles out throughout the organization. Um, as well. We really value them because they're on the front lines. They're the ones that are responding to those uh, rapes at the, at the hospitals and uh, talking at a juvenile hall with someone who has been trafficked. Mm -hmm. um, so they're the ones that are doing a really, really hard work. And, and we also have the leadership team that has that vision and wants to provide that kind of support as well. And in terms of myself, I've been really lucky that our board of directors supported a model of co-directorship. So I was, uh, I was on medical leave. I'm a cancer survivor and I was on medical leave for a year. I came back and I said, there's no way that I'm going to be able to, with my new perspective, with my new uh, yeah, perspective on life, there's no way that I'm gonna be able to do this work uh, full-time sort of on my own and, and, 
and lead this organization on my own. And uh, Kaylin, who is my co-director, she was the interim director at the time, and she did a beautiful job. And I said, wouldn't it be great if we could be co-directors? And the, the board supported the idea. And there's not a lot of co-directorships uh, around, but we've never been convention. Uh, a, a traditional organization so we just said let's try it and see if it works and it's worked great and this was right before the pandemic and had we not done that i don't know how we would have been able to get through the pandemic mm -hmm. the way we did experiencing a 75 percent increase in services with just being a, a, mm -hmm. a one person leading the organization or rather uh, an executive director. So it was a really smart move on that, that we made. And I'm so glad that we were able to do that. Uh, and I also just really pay attention to uh, my body. And I try to make sure that um, I get my endorphin fix as much as possible. And I notice when my body is breaking down and when I need it. And I'm just very mindful of my health because my health is my priority. And I, I just try to reduce my hours when I feel like I'm getting overwhelmed and um, I have reduced my hours and being able to create some kind of, some kind of balance, um, if you will. I know that that doesn't really exist when you're Latina, when you know people are coming to you and asking you for things. Um, wanting you to be on boards, wanting you to be on task forces, et cetera. And it's, it's hard to say no, uh, but setting healthy boundaries is one of the things that I've learned to do more so these past few years. Well, and if we, we say that we support and encourage self-care, then we need to show that we support and encourage self-care and create space for folks to do that. Um, I'm always so impressed with Monarch and, you know, that you all go out and do your yoga events together and, and a lot of physical activities to get staff outside and moving. And I think that that's one of the most beautiful things about Monarch as well is just, it's a beautiful sisterhood. You know, there's a few good men there, but it's a beautiful sisterhood. And I think that um, Laura and Kaylin show up in a way to support staff that is very much just you guys mesh so well. And it's not something that many people could do, but we fully support that. You keep um, in referring to me, I am on the board of directors of Monarch Services. And um, I've done that for about two and a half years in Monarch. I came to them um, asking, can I please be on your board? And that was because I am a survivor. And um, when I was 17, I was um, in a domestic violence uh, relationship and um, I went to the Fence of the Mujeres back then and sought out support. And so I knew that once I, you know, was at a point in my life where I was ready to start to give back that Monarch was the agency that I wanted to give my time to. And so I'm so proud to support and represent you and Kaylin and all of the staff and just be a, a voice to help uplift these voices that are often not um, highlighted in a way that they should be. And the work that, um, that Monarch is doing is um, just it's it's the heart work right it's hard work but it's also that heart work and so thank you so much for all you do um i do have one more question for you laura yeah what would be the advice that you would give to your younger self to lead with humility uh, and 
because people that you run into and that you form relationships with and bonds, though it's really important to maintain those relationships and also not bring your bridges, even though you may not ever see them, you think you're not never gonna see them again, you will because it's a small world. Mm -hmm. And I remember having a boss who wasn't very nice to me and sort of dismissed me and was, in my opinion, was very racist uh, towards me. And I ended up becoming a planning commissioner. And she, as a planning commissioner, we provided direction to the staff. And she was one of those staffers that I had to provide direction to. So the, t the tables flipped. Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought to myself, wow, who would have ever thought that I was going to be giving her direction um, and that she had to respond to my emails and had to respond to my requests, et cetera. And so I, I learned from that, that it's just the right thing to do to always really lead with humility. And my dad was a very humble human being and he passed away during the pandemic. And I always just remember the way he showed up to in his life. And he was just a very humble human being. And one of the things that we talk about in our agency is um, cultural humility and that it, how important that is to allow people to, for, for us not to judge anybody and to really allow them to have that space to tell us about who they are and not judge them. So I would say that um, humility, leading with humility and developing relationships is really important. And so that's what I would tell my younger self is uh, to not lead with arrogance and to not be so, to not be aggressive, but you can still be assertive and still lead with humility which I'm sure as a woman of color, you've been told many times that you're aggressive in your approach or, Absolutely. you know, what, which a male might be seen as, oh, you're so assertive. <laughs> right. Of course. Laura, well, you I just wanted to say it's, you know, it's so wonderful to hear your story, Lara. And, you know, um, I think it's important for the listening audience to hear your story um, and particularly the fact around self-care. Um, and when the leaders are projecting self-care, that just comes automatically with your staff and it allows them the permission to take care of themselves and particularly with the kind of uh, organization that you're serving, which is, you know, a nonviolent direction. Um, it's so important for uh, for that to happen from the leadership. And so uh, we really honor you here at Healthcare Untold uh, for your leadership um, and the organization of Monarch Services. Just to kind of uh, wrap up our show, are, is there any advice that you have to our listening audience around, you know, the, the future of, of your organization or that, what you see for Latino communities across the country is they're all facing many of the same hurdles that you've had to face in terms of increased services and really getting together with their local leaders to really hold people accountable. Can you give us some of your advice before we end our show today? Sure. Uh, what I want to say is that we're experiencing unprecedented numbers of femicides. Uh, so that's women are disproportionately murdered by their partners in comparison to other genders. So using terms like murder and homicide really ignores the type of violence. 
um, that it really is. And when we really dig deep into how, why this is happening, it's really, uh, goes back to the patriarchal power structures and traditional ideas, the machismo about and the gender roles that influence men to murder women at disproportionately high rates. Uh, so some of the things that we've had several femicides. Um, in fact, we've had two in Watsonville this, these past 10 months, and we've had four in our county. Uh, those are unprecedented numbers. And so we have a pandemic within a pandemic. Um, I was just talking to these some city council folks, and we're going to end up doing something um, for the community, maybe having a community conversation uh, around this, this pandemic and also a community vigil. And some of the things that a call to action, some of the things that we're asking our community to do is to believe survivors because oftentimes they're not believed and so they feel shame they're embarrassed and they don't want to come out because for for that reason that they're they don't think that their people are going to believe them it's important for them to have a support system it's important to check on your loved ones and your neighbors and help them plan in case they need to flee to safety. So we do safety planning with our anybody, our clients, anybody that comes in, and we help them. Do you need to have a, a backup plan? Have a bag in your in the back of your car um, in case you need to leave. Make sure your passports and your your driver's license are in a safe place. Make sure that you have extra money. Make sure that your kids know who to call in case they um there's anything that goes on so that we do safety planning and it's important for for people to check on each other and using social media to raise awareness around this issue um, is really important so when this the stuff that around the femicides came out um i used i went on social media and i started talking about domestic violence and um, there it there's there's an audience there and so i started sharing some of the information to help create more awareness and to help provide more education um, around this issue because it's this isn't the first time it's not the last time and it's just an ongoing thing that we've been experiencing for generations right mm -hmm. and we have to also be willing to have the courage to challenge uh, the machismo culture and the toxic masculinity that perpetuates violence within our own culture. Uh, we have to be able to talk about it and challenge it and not laugh about it. You know, oftentimes it comes up as a joke, but we can use that moment as a time to educate uh, each other and provide more awareness and, you know, not tolerating that kind, those kinds of jokes. And then also really just encouraging people to call and seek help, call the, the crisis line or call law enforcement if that's what they choose to do. And just to be able to, to help them and without judging them. And there's a lot of victim blaming. Um, we can't do that. We, we can't blame the victim. Domestic violence is very complex and understanding why women stay in those relationships. They sometimes stay for financial reasons. Sometimes it's because of their kids. Sometimes they don't have family. They don't have the support systems. They don't know where to go. And sometimes their abusers are have full control over them and they don't know how 
how and what to do. So being able to provide any kind of support is always really, really helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been so informative. I so value and appreciate uh, the work that you do, the position that you hold in our community, and you're such a strong chingona. We so, <laughs> there's just I love that, that word. Is the word for you. You are our biggest chingona here in Watsonville, and we uh, look forward to continuing to uplift voices like yours. And really our goal is also to continue to create that space and build bridges, right? The more knowledge we have, the more relationships we can build and partnerships, the stronger we can be to, to really get the work done that needs to happen to have a healthier community. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story with us, Laura. It's been a pleasure. And I hope any of young girls that are out there listening, uh, they know that I'm a Watsonville girl that ended up going to public schools uh, graduated, and I also took a program at Harvard. Um, so anything is possible when you take risks, when you follow your gut, and we, when you seek out support and not afraid to do that. So I really hope that there's girls out there listening and survivors uh, to seek help as well. And Laura, here locally, can you share our uh, the crisis number for folks locally that they could call? Sure. Yes, our crisis line number in Santa Cruz County is one eight 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 nine hundred four two three two. That one more time. One eight 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 nine hundred four two three two. That's the twenty four hour crisis line number that people can call, um, even if they just have questions. Even if they're not directly being abused, but they know someone who is and want to find out more information about what they can do as a support person um, or someone who can encourage them to seek help. Absolutely. We're able to provide that, those kinds of, that kind of information and resources to people who are considered support people. If you see something, say something. Exactly. Thank you. Well Thank said. you, Laura. So with that, um, on behalf of Healthcare Untold, we want to thank Lara Segura, the Executive Director of Monarch Services in Watsonville, California. And I really want to thank Jasmine Namahira for co-hosting uh, Healthcare Untold today. Thank you both. Excellent. That was Thanks, excellent. Barbara. Thank you. In today's Good News Latinos and X, as reported by the Los Angeles Times on July 27, 2021, the California has expanded health coverage through its Medi-Cal program, to people over 50 years old who are undocumented. Over 235,000 undocumented individuals in California will have the opportunity to apply for medical coverage. Seeking healthcare without being fearful and the inability to pay is healthcare equity. This is Barbara Ann Garcia at Good News Latinos and X at Healthcare Untold. <laughs>